We have the privilege this evening of having uh, Brother Stephen Cuffle with us this evening. And uh, Stephen provided a little bit of a, of a summary of his, of his background that I will share with you. Uh, and then I'll share a couple things that he didn't uh, include in his write-up. It says that uh, he came to know uh, Jesus while attending school at Texas A&M. And that's where he met his wife, Mary, who shared the good news about Jesus with him. And he was baptized into Christ on December 29th, 2001. And uh, Stephen remembers or has a specific uh, time at 2.37 p.m. Uh, it was when he was baptized into Christ. And since then, uh, Stephen has been preaching Jesus to whomever will listen. Stephen has been a full-time uh, gospel preacher since 2004, all over Tennessee and Texas. And their family is in the process of moving back to uh, Texas from Tennessee. And so while they've been in that transition, when they've been able, they've been able to worship with us here at McDermott Road. And the part that he didn't put in here was that uh, he and Mary have eight kids, uh, ranging from kindergarten to uh, a sophomore in college. So for those of you that are getting your kids back into school, then uh, there's some advice that you, if you need some advice on how to get uh, kindergartens and college uh, kids together and, uh, and into school, then uh, Stephen and Mary can probably share that with you. But again, we look forward, Stephen, to, uh, to hearing your message this evening and, uh, and, and as you share a word of encouragement with us. Preach the word, brother. Good evening, church. I love you. I want the best for you. And I want you to know any, more than anything that God loves you and wants you for his very own. I borrowed that from somebody you might know. But it's no less sincere than when he normally says that. I hope that tonight will be a blessing for you. And I hope that I'm able to take what God says and communicate it with you, encourage you, and bring you peace. We're going to be spending a lot of time this evening, as you can tell from the slide in the letters of the Romans. So if you have your Bible with you, and I hope you do, why don't you turn over to that letter. If you don't have one, there are Bibles in the chairs, or even better, there's probably somebody close to you who's got one. Just scoot over, be really awkward, and just borrow their Bible. And while you're turning over there, I also want to tell you a couple stories tonight. So we're going to look at Romans. I'm going to tell you two stories. And the first one starts with my conversion. I chose to follow Jesus in college. I'd always been interested in things like church history. I'd always gone to church. We were raised up with, with a good spiritual teaching, but I really didn't choose to follow Jesus until college. Before that, there was a lot of philosophy. There was a lot of theology. I mean, I loved all those things, and a lot of my relationship with God was based upon that. I didn't understand until college that the most important thing is knowing first that God loves me and then about my relationship with all three people in the Trinity through Jesus. That is firstly, mostly, preeminently, above all, Lee, what Christianity is about. And that is when I began to learn those things. And it happened when I met this girl and I asked her out on a date, and one of the first things she told me when I asked her out on a date is I asked her to go to this bar because I was in the Corps of Cadets and my outfit was going. And her response to me, I still remember it, she, she kind of paused. She was thinking about how I'm going to tell this guy who's amazingly handsome and witty 
and practically perfect in every way. How am I going to tell him no? And then she said something that I will remember for the rest of my life. I don't really know if that's a place that a Christian should go. Wait a minute. I'm a Christian. I've been lots of times. So what's going on here? And what I began to see is that there was something different about her life and my life. It wasn't that her theology was better. (laughs) Mine was. It wasn't that she knew church history better than me. It wasn't that she, she did know the Bible better than me at that point, but it's not that she knew more information than me. There was something that she had that I didn't. There was this love in her life, this driving compulsion to serve God and do everything that God wanted her to do above and beyond all else. And that was missing in my life. And it was when I came to see how much God loved me that I began to realize I had to change some things. You see, I I loved and I love my wife. I fixed that, didn't I? I love my wife and I changed things about myself for her. I put dirty laundry in the hamper. I wipe food off into the trash. I help with the dishes. I've changed things about my personality. I'm more careful to say things that she likes to hear. I avoid phrases or things she doesn't like to hear. I change the way I think. I change the way I act, where I go because of my love for her. And she's done the same thing for me. Now, if I'm willing to do that for a person, shouldn't the love that I have for God compel me to change some things about who I am also? Well, the problem is I didn't really have a reason to love God. Church history is cool. Theology is a lot of fun to talk about and debate and discuss and read. But it wasn't until I understand how much God loves me that I began to love him back. You see, when we start thinking about all the stuff that God did, he didn't have to do any of it. And when you start looking at the story, the narrative that plays out in Scripture, you see that God changed things for us too. You see, before anything existed, God was totally okay. He was perfectly fine before he made anything. He didn't need the creation. He didn't need the stars. He doesn't need the earth. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He did all of this for us. And then not only that, he came to earth and he suffered and died. And even more than those things, or in addition to those things, he did stuff like get thirsty and get hungry and get sick and have to be sore after a long day working or walking. Just all of those upon himself and then capstoned that with the suffering and humiliation of the cross. And then God raised Jesus from the dead. And now we have this amazing thing, this beautiful story and picture of God's great love for us. And when you begin to see that, all of a sudden, there is a reason to love God back. He did all this stuff for us while we were yet sinners. We love him because he first loved us. It is that love that drives us. When I learned about that, I was on fire. I would talk to everybody I could. There were free speech areas on campus, and I would go there when I would find people that I could talk to. I'd talk to Muslims. I'd talk to Hindus. I'd talk to Hare Krishna. That was interesting. I talked to lots of different beliefs and lots of different people from lots of different places. There were tons of people. I don't know what they were because they wouldn't stop and talk to me. But I talked to everybody I could, and what I wanted to tell them about was this love 
Because I was convinced that if people just knew how much God loved them and what he had done for them and the great confidence you can have, not because your church history is right or your theology is right, but because God loves you, if you knew that, then you would have this overflowing joy, this exuberance, this life-changing understanding of who God is and what he's done. And then the conclusion of this story actually happened one night in a Bible study about three months after I was converted. The man who was preaching there, who I love like a father, asked a question in the Bible class. And this is the question. Are you 100% sure? Don't answer the question now. We'll answer it in a little bit. Are you 100% sure that you will be with God forever? Raise your hand if the answer is yes. That's what he said. So what did I do? And my hand was up, right? You know, like a kindergartner, when you ask a question, and the kindergartner knows the answer, and they squirm in their seat, and they're waving their hand, and they're like yelling for the teacher. That was me. And it took me about 30 seconds to realize that I'm the only one that I can see with my hand in the air. And all of a sudden, you know, you have that moment of doubt. That, Am I wrong? Is this not the right answer? Am I supposed to say No. Am I supposed to say, well, maybe? Am I supposed to say, I hope so? Let me ask you a question. What should my reaction have been if on the night that I propose to my wife, when I get down on my knee and I ask her, will you marry me? What should my reaction have been if her response was, I don't know, maybe? It would be better if she screamed and ran out of the room because then at least you know where you stand. And so here I am with this understand, this feeling that God is supposed to love me and I'm supposed to love him back, but I didn't know that this was a maybe proposition. And what, what he was talking about and what he was teaching about is the topic that we're going to talk about tonight. It's justification through faith. And as we look at this and we read through some of the letter to the Romans, we will see that if we don't understand this principle... It is going to lead us into a lot of trouble, into a lot of problems, into a lot of very dark and very bad places. It's going to lead us into a faith that can become rote. It's going to lead us into a faith that is insecure, that isn't based upon love, but can be based upon fear instead. And so as we're going through the letter to the Romans, I want us to think about that question. Am I sure that I am going to be with God eternally? And if my answer is yes, why is it yes? I hope by the end of the night, I'm going to ask the question again. I'm going to ask everybody to raise their hand. I do expect participation. I hope that we can all raise our hands. And the reason why is because it's going to be incredibly, incredibly encouraging to look around a room full of people who know and understand how much God loves them. The letter to the Romans. Let's dive in. So in chapter 1, Paul says some really interesting things. He starts off typical in his letters where he introduces himself. Don't skip over the introductions when you're doing your reading plans because there are some really rich and amazing things in the first few verses of the letters. Like, for example, he's set apart for this gospel, and then he's going to tell you what it is. 
He's promised this gospel in verse 2 beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who is descended from David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, even Jesus Christ our Lord. So what he has just told us is that everything he is going to talk about Everything that he preaches, everything that he teaches is based upon promises that came beforehand in the law and the prophets. He's not making any of it up. He didn't dream any of it up. It's not something that was just one day created out of nothing. This has been God's plan from before the foundation of the world. And then he's going to tell us why he's writing the letter, why he is an apostle in verse 5. Right? We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. That includes us. I don't know your family background. I'm not Jewish. I'm 1,256 Jewish, which is like my left pinky toe or something like that. But generally, I'm not Jewish. If God's promises were only for the Hebrew people, then they're not for me. But Paul has just said that from the beginning, God has planned on doing this for all the nations. When God was talking to Abraham, he was going to bless all the nations through the things that he was going to do for Abraham. And so what we see here is God has planned from the beginning to save us through this gospel that he promised in the law and the prophets. And he verified by raising his son from the dead. This is sort of bookends Romans. Paul is going to say this here. He's going to say it later in chapter 16. And so the point of everything Paul is writing is that the gospel of God should bring about obedience through faith. Sometimes when we say things like justification through faith or we're justified by faith, we kind of get a little nervous. In fact, if you want to get in trouble, I will tell you how to get in trouble in a Bible class or, or in a conversation sometime, just say this, right? Just say, well, I believe that we're justified through faith. And then stop talking. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. And what will happen is everybody is going to start squirming because for some reason we're really uncomfortable with that statement. But that's what Paul is talking about from the beginning of the letter to the end of the letter, that this apostleship, this grace, this gospel that has been delivered to us is to bring about obedience through faith. So everything that we talk about, we have to understand we're not saying that you don't have to do anything, that there's no obligations, that's, that's totally off the table. Instead, we're talking about this driving, compelling love that almost forces us to do the things that God says because we understand how much he loves us. And it is that faith, that need for God, that is what justifies. That's going to be important, and we're going to see why as we go through the text. And so he's going to say some other things that are very interesting in chapter 1. We just don't have time to touch on everything this evening. But when you get down to verse 11, one of the neat things about reading Scripture over and over and listening to other people and reading books is that you find out all the things that you get wrong. In verse 11... He says, I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. And now if you're like me, I stop reading there often. And I want to go back and I want to say, oh yeah, Paul wanted to go to Rome so that he could lay hands on people and impart miraculous gifts or manifestations of the Spirit and do all those cool things. Paul has this really bad and annoying habit of saying something and then explaining what he means. 
And so if you keep reading, he says, I want to come to you so I can give you a spiritual gift. And by the way, that phrase, spiritual gift, this is the only place in all of the Bible where it occurs. What is this spiritual gift? It's not speaking in tongues. It's not words of wisdom. It's not raising people from the dead. What is it? That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by one another's faith both yours and mine. He wanted to come live with these people and talk to these people and suffer with these people. He wanted to love God with them. He wanted to love them and be loved by them. And this was the spiritual gift he was bringing, his faith. And the gift they would give back was theirs. And all of that faith would build each other up, would encourage one another, would push each other further and further into service and devotion of God. And so as we continue reading down through this letter, that's the, that's the back end, right? That's the idea, everything, pushing everything forward. And then you get to verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And now again, for a long time I used to read this. And when we read scripture, one of the things that are difficult for me at least to remember is that originally there's no punctuation. So when you're reading through it, your Bible, right, you have periods and commas and hyphens and semicolons, all those really cool things that help us sort of parse sentences. In the first century, this is a block of capital letters, and it just covers a whole sheet. It's got to be one of the most annoying things in the world to read. And so when you read this, one of the things that ancient writers used to do that Paul does is he's continually inserting what we would call parenthetical statements, right? We would put parentheses around them. And so when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, now you're going to get a parenthetical statement. Well, what is the gospel? It is the power of God for salvation to everyone. See, I used to read that, again, with sort of more of a workspace mentality, and I would read that and I would think, well, the gospel are these 1,300 things that I have to do. I have to hear in the first day and take the communion and do all these things. Those are all good things. I have to do, I have to make sure that I share. I have to not lie and not murder and not cheat and, and not do any of these bad things. Look, I want to tell you a secret. I have friends who are atheists who have come to church with me before. They put money in the collection plate. They even took communion. They asked me if they should. I said, it's up to you. They took communion. None of my friends who are atheists have ever murdered anybody. They don't steal. They tell the truth. They're not Christians. That's not what Christianity is. Now, Christians ought to be the kindest, the most truthful, the most generous, the most loving, the least murdering people in existence. Right? But that's not what Christianity is. And here, when we think about salvation and the heart of the gospel, is it's not me doing my 10,000 things. It's that God not only wants to save me, but that God can save me. That he is powerful to save. That's why Zephaniah 3.17 is so powerful. Your God is in your midst, and he is mighty to save. Because sin and death are these enemies that we can't overcome. I am going to die one day. I can't stop it. I have sinned. I am marred by sin. I am broken by sin. I am sick from sin and I can't heal myself. But God can. And not only can he, but he said he will. 
That's why it's good news. That's what's different about Christianity and all the other things that make people be nice. That's what's different. And so when we're reading through here and we're thinking about this overarching idea, it is this idea that God loves us and he bestows upon all who are faithful eternal life with him. He continues in chapter 1, and he's going to go through, and he's going to talk about some really bad things. And if you look in verse 24, 26, and 28, there's this phrase that gets repeated where he gives people up. He hands them over. He lets them sell themselves out to sin. Right? And they become slaves of sin, bondservants of sin. Sin and death own them. And at the very end, he says some things that sort of put everybody under this umbrella. Though some people know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, chapter 2, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. And in the ancient world, this is pretty much a one-way street as far as judging concerning God's word is. The Jews would judge the Gentiles. They would talk about all the different things that they do wrong, how they don't know God, and how they do these other things. And so what Paul is doing is he's lumping everybody together. The Gentiles are lost because most of them don't know any better, or they don't care. And the Jews are lost because even though they do know better, it doesn't change who they are. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. At no point in this letter does Paul ever make an excuse for sin. At no point does Paul ever say, it's all right to sin, it's okay, because you're a believer. He never says anything like that. Instead, he's going to say, when people charge him with that, he's going to say, meganoito, which is the most powerful denial possible in the Greek language. Absolutely not. God forbid, your translation may say, over in Romans chapter 6. But the idea here that I'm a believer so I can just do whatever, that's not what Paul is talking about. What he's talking about is this love that drives us to actually care. So that when we know God wants something, we strive to do it. So that when we see God tell us something in Scripture, we actually kind of try to internalize that and change who we are. And then he's going to continue in chapter 2 and he's going to talk about how this judgment comes upon all people. In verse 12, for all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Okay, so here's a question. If having the law, if you have the law and you're going to be judged, and you don't have the law and you're going to be judged, is it the law that keeps you from being judged? No. So it has to be something else. If it isn't the law that saves you, if it isn't keeping the law that saves you, then what is it that saves you? He's sort of introducing the idea here, and he's going to nail it down as we go through the text. If you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, this is verse 17 in chapter 2, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, if you do all these things and you think you're this great person, then in verse 21, you then who teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You who say it's wrong to steal, why do you give lame sacrifices? You who say it's wrong to murder, why do you take 
in pledge the only thing that somebody has by which to feed their family. He's going to go through, and, and this, this idea covers everything that you will read in the Old Testament, the story of the people of Israel, all the places where the prophets call them out. Yeah, you didn't actually murder somebody, but you're doing the very things that caused their death. Yeah, you're not worshiping Baal. Sometimes they are. But you've made your own idols and just given them different names. In Exodus 32, when they build the golden calf, what do they call it? Jehovah. It's an idol. Moses comes down the mountain and breaks the plates, the tablets, grinds them. Just because you use the right words doesn't mean you're doing the right things. Verse 22, 25, circumcision is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It means nothing matters. And then verse 28, he's going to say, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. That's the law. That's the restrictive diet. That's the restrictive garments. That's the restrictive places you're allowed to go. All those things that change externals. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is, is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit and not by the letter. And so what he's just done is he switched things, right? We were talking about external, outward things, and now he's saying that this is all about internal stuff. It's not the law that saves you. It's something that's going to be inside. It's not your clothing. It's not your diet. It's going to be something internal that makes the difference between all of those things. You know, one of the, the most famous proverbs in the Old Testament is that a fool says in his heart, there is no God. Where did he say it? In his heart. Because nobody who is sane and an ancient Israelite is going to say out loud, there is no God. Because you'll die. And so all along, from the very beginning of time, God has been concerned with something that isn't outward and external. He's got to teach us what it is through lots of signs and symbols and pictures, but he's concerned with something that is inside. And that's going to lead to this question that begins chapter 3. Well, then what advantage is there for the Jew? Well, there's a lot. They got the law. They got the prophets. They were the people that God set in the world as a city on a hill. They were the salt of the earth. They were supposed to go out so that 10 men would come and grab the hem of the garment of a man from Israel and say, take me to your God. That's what they were supposed to be. They got lots of advantages. But then if you continue down in chapter 3, but ultimately, what is their advantage? None, because they threw it away. They weren't who they were supposed to be. For by the works of the law, verse 20, chapter 3, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. All right, I told a fib at the beginning. There's three stories. The second one is this. A very long time ago, there was a man who was walking through a field, and he saw a pear tree. And he climbed up the pear tree, and he started to steal all the pears on the tree. And once he had taken the fruit illicitly, stole it, once he had taken the fruit, he didn't eat any of the pears. 
If somebody comes and breaks into my house and steals my bread and I catch them in the driveway eating the bread because they are hungry, they can have the bread. Even better than that, I'll take them in my house and give them some real food. Well, I won't marry Will. We will cook for them. He didn't steal the pears because he was hungry. In fact, he just took the pears and he threw them out into a field full of hogs. He stole the pears for the thrill of stealing. He stole the pears for the excitement of doing something wrong. You have done that too. Now you didn't climb up a pear tree, probably. But wasn't there some point in your life where you knew what you were about to do was wrong, but you did it anyway, and you didn't do it because you needed what was going to happen. You did it because you wanted to. And in that moment, you say, I don't care what God wants. I don't care what other people want. I don't care what God needs. Nothing for me. I don't care what other people need. I'm going to do what I want. That is the biblical definition of depravity. That not caring and doing what I want No human being will be justified in his sight because through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's what it means. You know you're not supposed to do it, but you do it anyway. God has said, don't don't do this. And we do it anyway. But now, here's the beginning of where he sort of turns things around. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, if this isn't highlighted or underlined, if you write in your Bible, I would highlight and underline this portion. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? I know, I feel that. The good news is that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by keeping the law. Mm -mm. By faith. This is why justification through faith matters. Because if we are going to stand before God, if one day we stand before God, and I don't know if this is how that will play out, but if we stand before God and he asks me the question, why should I let you be with me forever? And my answer starts off with, well, I was baptized and I did this and I did this. That's the wrong answer. Do we understand who God is? And what it means to bring something as an offering, as a sacrifice to God. Do we really think that we are able to give God what he deserves? If that's the case, if that's what our salvation is, and that's salvation by the law, by works, if that's the case, then nothing I have ever done merits my salvation. I know exactly what time I was baptized. Almost, there was no second hand on my watch. I know the day, the year, the time. I know the names of all the people who were there. There were only three. I still wasn't baptized well enough for God. Could it have been better? Could it have been greater or grander or more perfect? Could I have known more? 
Could more people have shown up? Could we have sung better songs or any songs? Could we have done something to make all of that bigger and better and more perfect and more grand and more deserving of God? Yes. I am not saved because of the things that I do. I still do them. I am saved because God is gracious. And God is gracious to people who come to him through faith. It has to be that way. Otherwise, we could just go and like rent a portable tub and just stroll through town with it and grab people and like force them under the water and now they're saved. It doesn't work that way. It's something else. It is this idea of being faithful. It's hard, right? Because then he's going to ask in verse 27, so what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. You don't get to boast because it's not based on what you do or how good you are or how perfect you are. By what kind of law is it excluded? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And now he's going to say in just a minute, he's not going to say works of the law. He's just going to say works. Because Paul doesn't have in mind here just the Jewish nation who has the old law. He's got in mind here everybody. Right? He's got in mind things that, that haven't even come up yet as questions. Modern hospitals don't really exist. But if you were going to buy your way into heaven, you want to know a really good way to do that is to build a hospital and take care of everybody for free. Please do that. That's not how it works. Instead, what shall we say? Chapter 4 was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh. But if he was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And the one who, who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So all of this depends upon God and God's willingness not to count. He's not an accountant. Accountants are great people, but God is not one. He's not keeping track of your sins. Why is he not keeping track of your sins? Because in 1 Corinthians 13, God says love doesn't keep an account of wrongdoings. That's why. Because God is love. He's not in heaven waiting to smite you for the smallest mistake that you make. He's on our team. He's rooting for us. He wants us to succeed. He wants us to do good things, right things. He wants us to love and to be loved. He wants all of that. And that's at the heart of what Paul is saying. The reason why we've been talking about this, we really don't have much more time to go through the letter to the Romans. If we were meeting until midnight, we might be able to make it to chapter 6. But we're not. So why is this important? It's important for a couple reasons. First, if we understand that salvation works a different way, we misrepresent God. And that's one of the reasons why people have this view of God as a tyrant who's waiting to get you, who, who's, who's kind of watching and waiting for you to slip up so he can, ha ha, gotcha. Right? That's, that's where that view comes from, is when we're thinking that I have to earn my salvation, then we're always worried about the report card. Have you ever felt that trepidation? 
at the end of a semester or a grading period when you're about to get the report card and go home and you're like, I don't know if it's going to be a good night tonight because I slept through a lot of history class. Right? God's not like that. That's not how this works. He grades on a really, really, really big curve. What happens is we come away with an image of a God who isn't love. A God who didn't sacrifice so much for us. We come away with a view of God who is a lot more like a human than who he says he is. And that's scary. We come away with a loss of security. In the years that I've been preaching, the number of people who have come to me and said, I don't know if I'm saved, is alarmingly high. The number of people who have come to me and said, I would try to be a good person, I try to be faith, but I just don't know if I'm going to be saved. It comes back to that marriage proposal, doesn't it? I'm not going to marry a woman who says, maybe? Why would I devote my life to serving a God who says, I might save you? Why would I suffer for that? This idea of security isn't based upon some theological doctrine. It's based upon the person of God, specifically the person as seen through Jesus. And when we start reading Scripture, one of the things we need to do is we need to always read the Bible with Jesus at the center point. When God showed us who he was, he did that best in Jesus. Anytime you're reading through a passage and you're coming upon something and it's difficult to parse or it's hard to understand or it's complicated, just think, Jesus, how would Jesus handle this? What would he do? That is how we should be reading through. And at the end of the day, he's not looking for perfection. He's looking for faith. And if you are faithful to Christ, even in the midst of insecurities, even in the midst of wrongdoing, if you are coming back to Christ, then you will be saved. Now listen, when I think of people who did bad stuff, there ain't nobody worse than David. What does Scripture testify about David? He was a man after God's own heart. He's a mass murderer. But he's a man after God's own heart. He knew he wasn't supposed to cat a census, but he did it anyway. But he's a man after God's own heart. He is a man of blood, but he's a man after God's own heart. How can that be? Because even through all of those, in the moments where he kind of loses his mind a little bit, where he's just not thinking straight, through everything David does, he is faithful. When he makes mistakes, he fixes them if he can. When he realizes he's been going the wrong direction, he turns around. When he pulls the, the ark on a cart and disaster strikes, he fixes it and does it the right way. That's why he's a man after God's own heart. Not because he got everything right on the first try, but because when he saw there was a mistake, he fixed it. And that's what his heart was after. Loving God with everything. And if we get this wrong, it also steals our joy. I, I used to laugh. There, there was one sister that we, we tried to be kind to, and she was the most cantankerous person that I have ever met in my entire life. I have never seen a more joyless person in my entire life. I'm not going to tell you her name because she might be watching. Um, why? First, there were a lot of struggles in her life that made it difficult to be joyful. 
But secondly, she was one of the people who came to me and said, I just don't know if I'm saved. What joy is there in that? How is there peace that passes understanding in that? What if I die now and something's not right? What if I don't know and I die before I figure it out? But when we trust God, everything resolves itself in the person of Jesus. Now, how do we fix this? There are a couple things that I would suggest very quickly is don't make the Bible fight with itself. I'm sure at some point in this conversation, somebody has thought, well, over in James chapter 2 and verse 26, it says, you're 100% right. It does. And if you take James and you take Paul and you make them fight, you're using the Bible wrong. Paul is addressing one situation and James is addressing another situation and they're both completely right. So when we come to Romans and you read and you hear Paul say we are justified through faith apart from works, don't make James fight with him. They don't want to fight. They knew each other. They were friends. Right? They actually agree with one another. And so whatever James says, it is true in its context. Right? And James and Paul will walk hand in hand together. Right? They would agree. You can't just say I believe and not do anything. But at the same time, you can't do everything and think that's what saves you. And so don't make the Bible fight with itself. Don't change the text. You'll be surprised how often we as humans read through something and we insert our own beliefs into it. We insert our bias into it. I used to do that with this passage in Romans. The other thing I would say is just trust what it says because this glorifies God. God is the hero of the story now, not me. It's not my actions that now save me, but God is the one who redeems me and saves me. It relieves fear. I don't have to be afraid of Judgment Day. I know where I'm going to be. I am faithful to God. I love him with every fiber of my being. I will be with him. It allows us to try new things. Notice y'all got a stained glass. Where's that in the Bible? got a projector system padded chairs book chapter verse please what it lets you do is it lets you live as a christian today it lets you be a believer today where you're using things like projectors and the internet and and all sorts of amazing things where you're addressing the needs and concerns of the church today because while we try new things we might make some mistakes we might implement things incorrectly at first but we're gonna figure it out but we will never get to where we need to be if we don't start. And the fear of judgment is paralyzing and crippling, but knowing that we will be saved through faith allows us to take footsteps after our father Abraham up to the mountain to bring sacrifices to God. And the last thing is it allows us to answer questions legitimately. If you get hit by a bus and are killed, but right before it kills you, you look and you see it and you say a bad word and it kills you before you repent, are you going to go to heaven? Yes, you will. If you're faithful. Why? Because you're justified through faith. What? Here's a more difficult one. What if somebody heard and believed and they're on the way to get baptized. 
and they get hit by a car or struck by lightning, or my favorite, a tree branch falls and hits them in the head and kills them, will they be saved? Did they have faith? Ultimately, it's between them and God, right? But Scripture says if they have faith, they'll be saved. Scripture says if the bus hits you, but you have faith, you'll be saved. And these aren't hypothetical situations. In 2006, I preached for the very first time a sermon in front of my father. This is my last story. For the first time, he heard somebody explain about God's love. The sermon title was, What Makes Us the Same?, And the answer is sin. The next morning, we were getting up and we were going to go fish on the beach. And on the car trip to the beach, he told me, I want to be baptized. And about 30 seconds later, we got hit by a drunk driver and he died in my arms. It's not a hypothetical situation. It's not an illegitimate question. Because what that question is asking Who is God? Who is God? Is he this maniacal despot who crosses all the the T's and dots all the I's and won't let you in unless you do the same? Is he waiting to kill you or is he trying to save you? That's what the question asks. The most difficult one. Are you sure, 100% sure, that you will be with God in eternity? If the answer is yes, raise your hand. Now look, just quick, look. You're not alone. God loves you. And that's encouraging. Thank you all so much. God bless you, and I love you all.